I am convinced that God has designed us to desire what is real. I believe God's designed us, wired us to desire authenticity, but then we experience brokenness. And sometimes, even though we have this deep desire for authenticity, we end up acting really fake. Because we think our authentic self or our authentic reality isn't good enough. And then we interact with other people's inauthentic self and we find this big steaming pile of fake. And we're like, I don't think I was made for this. And you're right. We weren't. And because we desire for this authentic connection, we then created social media. Because it's so authentic. And so there's, because I believe God's designed us this way, there's some emerging uh, social media platforms that are gaining traction right now, like Be Real or Glance Back, that are meant to be like authentic social media, where you, to engage with that platform, have to take a picture of yourself, whatever you look like in that moment, and then flip the camera, take a picture of wherever you are, no matter how not glorious it might be. And it shows if you did retakes, like it shames you for being inauthentic without filter options. It's just like this meant to be reality because there's this thing in us that's like, I want it to be more real than all of this. For instance, some of us will see pictures this time of year on social media like this one where our friend is at the beach and they're like, I'm on vacation. And we, and we see that picture and we're like, last time I saw you, you were so white that you were like translucent. That's the, and, and, and let's be real. Your skin ain't that smooth, right? And so then we see this picture and we realize it's just not authentic, right? Like even when we're trying, To keep it real, it's just not that real. And this morning, as we're continuing to work our way through the book of Acts, what we're going to see, I believe, is the realest reality that exists. We're going to look at the, the grand narrative that summarizes what I think is the truest truth. The most authentic authenticity. So grab your Bible, if you would, this morning. If you don't have a Bible today, there's one underneath the seat in front of you. Uh, And if you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you today. Feel free to hang on to that and keep that. Uh, But we're going to invite you to hold that Bible up in the air with us. We have a tradition. We say a creed together and a prayer together before we jump into the Bible. And don't feel obligation to do that if that's not where you're at in your spiritual journey today. But if you are, then let's declare this this morning with some authority and some conviction as though it's the realest reality. Here we go. The Bible is the word of God. The truth of the Bible will change my life. Lord, open my heart and awaken my mind and give me grace to respond. Change me for your glory and my joy. Amen. Thank you so much. You can turn to Acts chapter 12. If you're using one of those Bibles from the seat in front of you, it's page 866. Acts chapter number 12. We've been working through the book of Acts since January. We started with this powerful summary verse in Acts chapter 1, verse number 8, where Jesus is like, hey, when the Holy Spirit comes, you're going to be my witnesses. You're going to share the good news in Jerusalem where you live, which is what we studied in Acts chapter 1 through chapter 7. 
and in Judea and Samaria, which is where we've been since chapter 8. And that's going to kind of end the scene uh, when we finish this chapter this morning, we're going to take a break for the rest of the summer. In August, we're going to pick up the rest of that verse. Be as witnesses to the ends of the earth. And so we'll kind of springboard in August to the ends of the earth. But here we are kind of finishing up our time in Judea and in Samaria. We're going to see an interesting guy in this story. Verse number one, about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. I don't know why, but that language, laid violent hands, just like reads funny to me, right? Like he started throwing hands with the church. Like he declared, thou dost not want to be catching these hands. You know, like, I don't know. It's just nobody else. It's just, okay, back to the text. I thought it was funny. Thank One person thought it was funny. Thank you. Um, so, oh, let me explain kind of who this Herod is before we move on. Uh, this Herod is the grandson. So Herod is a title, not a name. He's uh, uh, a Herod, not the Herod. He's the grandson of Herod the Great that we read about when Jesus was born. The Herod that tried to kill baby Jesus is his grandfather. That's the legacy he comes from. His uncle then became Herod after him. Uh, Herod Antipas, he's the one, if you remember the story, that beheaded John the Baptist, right? So he comes from a lineage that was pretty aggressively opposed to this Jesus, right? And then he comes into power. Uh, he's Herod Agrippa I. He comes into power, and then his son, Herod Agrippa II, will come into power after him. He's the one we're going to meet in, like, November-ish in Acts chapter 26, who has this conversation with the Apostle Paul and that whole, have you almost persuaded me to become a Christian? That's his son. This Herod, Herod Agrippa I, was really concerned with having a good relationship with both Rome, who he worked for, and with the Jewish people. His mother was Jewish. He was raised in a Jewish household, even though he was raised in Rome. And so he wanted to, to keep their law as much as possible, or at least respect it. He wanted to keep their festivals as much as possible, or at least respect it, and, and their feasts and all of that. And so he, he was a, a politician that wanted his people to like him. Verse number two, he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Real quick, just so we know which James this is. There's three Jameses in the New Testament. So if you grew up around the Bible, you're like, but I read about him later. What, ha- what happened to that? So there's a couple different Jameses. There's James, the son of Alphaeus. We don't know a whole lot about him. He's not a central figure. There's James, the brother of Jesus. He's a big deal. As a matter of fact, we'll see him at the end of this chapter. Uh, he becomes like the lead pastor for the church at Jerusalem, which is like the mothership at this time in history for the church. But this is James, the brother of John. James and John were the sons of Zebedee, but Jesus gave him the cool nickname, Sons of Thunder, which is way cooler than Sons of Zebedee. No offense, Mr. Zebedee. Sons of Thunder is a way cooler nickname. And he was a part of that inner group, right? Jesus has the massive crowds who followed him, and then he's got the 12 disciples. And then among the 12, he has the three that are sometimes called the three. I guess this guy had a lot of nicknames. Peter, James, and John were in that like inner circle. They got to see Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And they're the ones who went to the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus. And he left the other 11 because Judas had gone off to betray Jesus on the night he was betrayed. 
He left the eleven there, and, and Jesus took the three, Peter, James, and John, a little further during the high priestly prayer that's still being fulfilled today. Like, these guys were really close to Jesus, which is what makes his death so significant, right? And it's interesting. We won't spend a lot of time on this, but um, there's a story in Matthew chapter 20 where the sons of thunder send their mommy to Jesus, right? Not so thundering. Hey, mommy, will you go ask Jesus if we can sit on the right side and left side of his throne when the Messiah comes back to rule and reign? Which is a pretty audacious request, right? Like that's the seat of power and authority. And they're like, mommy, will you go get us the happy seat? You know, like, and so she goes and asks Jesus that, and Jesus does not answer her. He turns to James and John and he said, you can't drink of the cup I'm going to drink of the cup of suffering. You can't be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with the baptism of death. And they replied, yes, we can, Jesus. We'll suffer with you and for you. We will die with you and for you. And Jesus replies, yes, you will. You will indeed share in this cup, the cup of suffering. You will indeed share in this baptism, the baptism of death. But you can't sit on my right hand or left hand. Get over yourself. He says it nicer than that. And then here we have that moment that's fulfilled. Like in this moment, James dies by the sword. But because he'd spent so much time with Jesus, he died with courage. His death was amazing. And so it doesn't, like, literally, this is all we read about his death. He died with a sword, period. But there's, some, there's a historian who lived at this time named Clemens, who also wrote some books that aren't in the Bible. Clemens tells us more about James, James's death. And it sounds very much like a son of thunder. Because he says that James stood there while he was being accused. So according to Jewish custom, you could not uh, execute someone unless there was a testimony. Somebody who got on the witness stand and gave account. Whoever it was that they set up to give a testimony against James saw his boldness in Jesus. That Clemens said right there in the middle of the council, he fell down on his feet in front of James and began to weep and said, I want to give my life to Jesus. And asked James for his forgiveness. And Clemens said that James leaned down as his sentence is being carried out. And said, peace be unto you. And kissed him on the forehead. And then they were beheaded together. This guy saw so much Jesus in him that in like 60 seconds he was like, I don't know what that is, but it's worth dying for. How incredible is that? Okay, back to the story. Back to Herod Agrippa. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. I just want to pause here. Y'all know I don't talk a lot about politics, but let me just say, when a politician is more concerned with popularity than doing the right thing, everybody's in a mess. Right? Like, I kind of just don't even care if a politician agrees with my worldview, just be honest about it. And by the way, that's true of every leader, right? The goal of a leader is not to be liked, it's to lead, right? But his motivation was, oh, this made them happy. Let's go find somebody else significant. Who's the other one of the three? Peter, sweet, throw him in prison. But this happened during Passover. After Passover, there was a week-long celebration called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. 
And so because he respected the Jewish customs, he's not going to execute Peter in the middle of the Feast of Oath. He's going to wait till it's over. So he sees that it pleases them. He arrests Peter. And here's why he did this. And here's the heart of what I want to say to you today. The reason he did this is because he seemed to think, if I can just remove the leadership of this thing called the church, it'll just fizzle out and die. But what Herod doesn't understand is these guys aren't the leader of this thing called the church. Jesus is, and he already raised from the dead. And Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell itself will not prevail against it. You can pretend like you're cutting off the head of the snake, but the head is Jesus. And this thing is unstoppable. And so in our desire for authenticity, here's what I would say about Herod Agrippa. There's always opposition. We live in a broken world. Life is broken. Life is hard. Well, we talked about the courage with which James died, but can we just be real how grief-stricken they were? He died. So let's be authentic. Life is hard, and God cannot be stopped. <laughs> like, that's not lyrics to a song. That's the realest real there is. The, the plans of God cannot be thwarted. The heart of God cannot be amended. The plan of God cannot be stopped. Amen. This was during the days of unleavened bread. I kind of already said that. Verse 4. When he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover... To bring him out to the people. That biblical language doesn't mean to bring him out to the people and be like, here he is. Everybody give him a hand. <laughs> or here he is. Let's release him. No, to bring him out to the people means public execution. That's what that language means. His intention is after the Feast of Unleavened Bread, he'll be executed. So he puts him with four squads of, of soldiers. And he, here's how that worked in, in that custom uh, in this day and time. So a prisoner of high value would be chained on his right side to a soldier would be chained on his left side to a soldier and then put inside of a cell where another soldier would stand at the door and then another soldier would be a little farther down the way. So four soldiers would would watch him for six hours. Then there would be shift change. Four new soldiers would come in nice and fresh and ready to make sure this soldier doesn't escape. That would happen for 24 hours. So there's four squads, four rotations of four Throughout a 24-hour period. This is where he puts him. That matters for later. That's why we stopped and said that. Oh, oh, verse 5. Verse 5 is good. So Peter was kept in prison, but, but earnest prayer for him was made to God, just in case there's any question where our prayers go, by the church. What a glorious description of a heartbreaking moment. Earnest prayer was made for him, for the individual, to the throne of Almighty God, who cannot be stopped, by his community of faith, the church. What an incredible statement. What if that was our reality? 
Like Joe Bob lost his job, but earnest prayer was made for him to God by the church. Sister Sue got a bad diagnosis this week, but earnest prayer was made for her to God by the church. Fred is really struggling with his addiction, but earnest prayer was made for him to God by the church. Sally's going through a divorce, and she's going to be a single mom raising those hellions, but earnest prayer was made for her and those hellions to God by the church. That's why we every week, like a broken record, implore you that if you're carrying something, text pray FW to 94000 because we think when life is hard, we need the encouragement of a community to come around us and pray for whatever's heavy. Not gossip about it, not be like, oh, that stinks to be you. No, to go to God on your behalf, which means we're keeping it real, right? Which means life is hard, but God is still on the move and we are not alone. That's the realest real there is. Earnest prayer being made for him by the church. Verse 6, now, when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, so the, uh, the last night of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the next day, Peter would be brought out to be executed. Peter was sleeping. No? The night before his planned execution, the dude is sawing logs. He's not pacing, he's not fretting, he's not demanding a better last meal. He's not filing motions to stay of execution. He's resting. He's sleeping. Is that incredible to you? Isaiah said, you will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you. Not stayed on what I'm afraid of, or stayed on the trial, or not focused on the struggle. When our, when our mind is focused on the character and nature and goodness and presentness of our God, we can take a nap. So here's keeping it real. Life is broken. But God is still on the move. And I'm not alone, which means I can have peace. Not, so therefore it's not hard anymore. He's going to be executed the next day. That's pretty hard. But peace was his. J. Oswald Sanders said, Peace is not the absence of trouble, it is the presence of God. Peace is not the absence of trouble, it is the presence of God. And I believe with everything in my spirit that that peace is available to you today. Whatever you're facing, whatever tomorrow holds for you. And I pray that it won't be execution. That would be a terrible Monday. But whatever you're facing tomorrow, I believe you can lay down and sleep tonight because God's got you. He's got this. He's got everything because he's God. And you're not. And you don't know how you're going to make it. But I'm really glad he does. 
One, uh, one guy was reading, uh, Skip Heitzig about, about this text. He said this. Here's the reality for children of God. Until God is ready to bring you home, you are invincible. How's that for confidence? Like Peter was like, Herod can't kill me. God decides when my time is done. And if God thinks my time's supposed to be done, I trust him. Night, night. He's out. The end. Is that amazing? Like tonight when you lay your head on your pillow and your mind's going about all of your problems. If you can just say, you know what? I'm going to put my mind on the character and nature of God. Wait, he governs my tomorrows. So as long as he didn't take a day off or go on vacation to take pictures of his hot dog legs, I can go to sleep. Peace is mine. Rest is mine. It's available for the taking. Not because my circumstances changed, but because my God never does. This needs to be said. Spoiler alert. Peter's fixing to get sprung from prison. Couldn't God have delivered James too? And he didn't. Right? And so just because God can doesn't mean in his sovereign will he chooses to. And, and, and the question I think is worth saying out loud, why did God rescue Peter and not rescue James? And the answer is because he sits in the heavens and he does what he pleases and he does all things well. And so we trust his sovereign reign, believing that in the next life we will finally have understanding of those questions that for today are above our pay grade. Life is hard, broken, but God is on the move and cannot be stopped. And we are not alone in this difficult place. So we can have peace. We can lay down and rest. I got to speed up. He was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains. We already talked about that. Centuries before the door regarding the prison. Yeah. Verse seven. (laughs) And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him. We're talking about keeping it real. This is not fairy tale. This is not fantasy. This is not Disney animation. I believe that an angel of the Lord stood next to him. Like I believe that God's word is literal. It is, is the word of God. He stood next to him. And a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter on the side. I'm going to say something. I've never, all these years of speaking, I've never said this on a platform before. I'm about to get incredibly vulnerable with you. I hate to be touched on the side. Some of you are going to greet me as you leave today. And poke me just to see if I'll punch you in the Lord's house. And let me just tell you, Jason McDaniel, I will. And then I'll hide behind someone bigger than me. Um, This word struck him on the side can mean two different things. It can mean a gentle nudge or it can mean like kapow. Right. And here's the thing. Some of you are married to someone that all it takes is a gentle nudge. And they're like, is it morning? And then some of you are married to someone that you can do like suplex and they just sleep through everything right those are the two people who marry each other and resent each other for the rest of their lives it's awesome (laughs) 
So I don't know if this was like a Peter or like a dude, angel glowing. I don't know. We don't know what kind of struck it was. Anyways. He struck Peter on the side and woke him saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. How awesome is this? So apparently, it doesn't say this in the text. But apparently, the angel gave like some night-night juice to the guards. Because they slept through the glowing light. And then the ka-clink, ka-clink, chains fell off. Dudes just slept through it, right? Or else they're just terrible. Maybe they were... (laughs) 2022 fast food employees. I don't know. Um, (laughs) The angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. Yeah, I would too. He did not know what was being done by the angel. He did not know that what was was real. He's like, is this happening? What did they put in my last meal? (laughs) I knew there were mushrooms, but thought he was seeing a vision. And when they passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. And it opened for them of its own accord. Like the angel apparently had a garage door opener. Press the button. You think about how amazing this was. Peter's like, I can't be seeing this, right? This can't actually be happening. They went. Along one street, immediately the angel left him and Peter came to himself and said, now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel. I don't know how he came to himself. I don't know if he was like, I need to pinch myself. I need need to strike myself like the angel struck him. Like somehow he's like, this happened. I'm here. He rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Let me pause for just a second and let's keep it real today. Life is hard. But God cannot be stopped. We are not alone in this. And we can have peace because prayer actually works. Prayer doesn't work because we pray. Prayer works because God is God. I love this uh, Puritan back in the 1600s named Thomas Watson said, The angel fetched Peter out of prison. But prayer fetched the angel. The angel fetched Peter, but prayer fetched the angel's prayer works. Verse 12, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. So John Mark, he's the author of the gospel of Mark. Uh, At the end of this chapter, we're going to see he goes on a missionary journey. He ends up becoming an important uh, player in the story of the early church. But I want to say something about this house. A lot of. Historical scholars believe that Mary's house, this is a different Mary, they believe this is where the upper room was. Like this is the the church office for the book of Acts. This is the conference room. Last Supper, where they waited for the Holy Spirit, for the day of Pentecost. Like this is an important piece of real estate. And I love that when Peter experiences miraculous provision from the hand of God, his first impulse is to go to where the presence of God is. Right? Where the people of God are. And I also think it's worth noting that the central hub of activity for the early church, scholars believe, is the home of a single mom. 
How cool is that? I think that's cool. Many were gathered and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. Knock, knock. Who's there? It's Peter. Oh, my goodness. Turns around, leaves him at the gate and goes back inside and goes, Peter's here. Like, you see Peter going, I was just ushered by an angel. I believe you should open the door for me. Like, hello. She runs back in. I love that. She runs back in verse 15. They said to her, girl, you are outside your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, well, then it's his ghost. They must have killed him a day early. That's what this means. So here's somebody hear this with your heart today. Life is hard, but God can't be stopped. We are not alone, which means peace is possible because God answers our prayers despite our faith. They did not believe that God was going to deliver Peter out of prison and yet they're still having an all night long prayer meeting. I think my faith would have been so small, I'd have been like, I'm going to bed, y'all. They did not ex- Here's why that's so important, because there's a huge movement of teaching in the church in the U.S. today and around the majority world that says if you just have enough faith, God will make you rich. If you just have enough faith, God will heal your diseases. If you just have enough faith, God will bring your wayward child back home. If you just have enough faith, he'll set you free from that addiction. Whatever your problem is, you don't have enough faith. And God, in that scenario, is sitting up in heaven going, man, I really wish I could help them, but I can't because they don't have enough faith. God does not depend on our faith. God does not wait for permission to rescue the perishing. My faith does not indicate the glory of God. He is glorious and does what he wants despite my faith, either the absence of it or the presence of it. Because even when I have faith, it ain't that much faith, y'all. It's about him. This morning, Someone who's been struggling with some anxiety said to me, man, I feel a lot of peace today. And I said to them, well, I did pray for you today. So clearly I'm just that spiritual. You're welcome. And we laughed with a, you know, church, ha 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 church laugh, you know, because that's ridiculous. It's ridiculous to to think I got involved and therefore the heavens moved because I'm so special. The, The miraculous provision of God is not because we're amazing. It's because he's amazing. And I might have days of absolutely in the negative faith. And God still shows up and makes much of himself. And you know what happens when that happens? My faith grows. My faith is a byproduct of the movement of God, not what instigates it. They said, there's no way that that's Peter. I keep thinking, 
that I'm going to reach a point in my walk with Jesus that I expect him to answer prayer. And yet I'm shocked every time. Can anybody else be honest enough to say that? I'll be like, huh, he actually did it. And if God was as sarcastic as me, he'd be like, for the millionth time, hello. And I'm still shocked by it. So, meanwhile, Peter's been standing at the gate this whole time that we've been talking. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning them with his hand to be silent, he's like, no, y'all chill out. I got a story to tell. He described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And then he said, tell these things to James, that this is a reference to James, the brother of Jesus. Tell these things to James and the brothers. That's the generic term. The brothers tell everybody is what that means. Tell everybody who's a follower of Jesus. Spread word about what God just did. Because when God does something great in your life, it's not just for you. He's growing your faith because somebody else might need to feed off of that faith for a little bit. And then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. And we don't see Peter again for a few years. We, don't, we actually don't totally know what he does. We'll see him in Acts chapter 15 at the end of August. So he's spending the summer. Just kidding. In Caesarea. Okay. Um, verse number 20. We, we come back now to Herod. Agrippa, he was angry. This sounds like a story that has nothing to do with anything, but it's so important. This is not a change of topic or like a Luke all of a sudden was like, oh, by the way, hang with this. Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord and having persuaded Blastus. What a cool name. Anyways, Blastus, the king's, he is basically the chief of staff, the king's chamberlain. They asked for peace. We don't know. I, I, I tried to find out what did they do that made him mad. I don't know. But they're mad at him. And here's why that matters. Their country depended on the king's country for food. They're like, what do we have to do to make nice for him? And, and so, again, it doesn't give us context here. We have to look outside the Bible at some historical readings to see the bigger picture of the story. And if you've been in church for a while, you've probably heard of a guy named Josephus. Kind of like Brosephus. But Joe. He was a historian, first century Jewish historian. He tells us that Herod Agrippa came down and he held kind of like a miniature Olympic Games with these big theatrical shows and competitions and whatever in honor of the Roman emperor named Claudius. So he goes down there and he's like, y'all want to be nice to me? Host my Olympic Games so that I can get more clout and cred with the Roman power system. Make sense? You with me? Right? Okay. Verse 21. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon a throne, and delivered an oration to them. Again, Josephus gives us a little more information. This was on apparently day two of these Olympic Games. And he put on a garment that was made, according to Josephus, entirely of silver. And so as the day began, the morning sun was just coming up. And according to Josephus, the sun was reflecting off of the silver in this robe, and it said he was like glowing mystically. And so all the people were like, ooh, right? At this time, in Roman uh, uh, governors, 
were considered godlike anyhow. And now this dude's literally glowing. He must be a god. And whatever he said, this was their response. The people were shouting, the voice of a god and not of a man. They're basically worshiping this guy who sought to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. They're calling him a god. Immediately, next verse, an angel of the Lord struck him. Here we have striking again, only not so gentle this time. Struck him down because he did not give God the glory. (laughs) And he was eaten by worms. Okay, the Bible just got gross. And he breathed his last. Again, Josephus helps set the scene that he's wearing this silver thing that's glistening in the sun. And he speaks and they start calling him a god. And according to Josephus, immediately he doubled over with stomach pains, stomach cramps, which scholars think was you haven't had breakfast yet, have you? Tapeworms eating away at his insides. Sorry. They carry him off of the throne into his chamber where for five days he was writhing in agonizing pain and then died. He died of stomach cramps. Like... Anytime we think we're God, we're kind of full of, well, right? They got it. This, this horrible death. Here's why that's important. Because the king of Galilee, the king of Judea, just got upstaged by the king of kings. Here's why this is a powerful moment to me. Because there's coming a day where every king... That's ever lived. Every movie star that's ever lived. Every influencer who's ever gained a following. Every musician that's ever taken a stage. Every athlete that's ever been the center of the spotlight. Every single person who's ever lived will all in unison bow our knee. All of our tongues will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. There's coming a day where we will all see him for who he is. Here's the question. What kind of nudge is that going to take? Right? You see the same language. Peter got nudged. Then the king got nudged. I want to listen to the kind of nudge that Peter got. And not be hard-headed like Agrippa was. Right? Because God loves us too much to leave us in our own self-centeredness. He wants to rescue us from that and give us true human flourishing, which we aren't a big enough meal to produce for ourselves. Because he wants to satisfy the longings of the human soul, he's going to nudge us until he brings our attention to himself. Because only he can satisfy the longings of the human heart. And so... This continued picture of the God who cannot be stopped is summarized in the next verse. The word of the Lord increased and multiplied, and it still is today. He still wants to increase and multiply his work in your life, too. 
And maybe this morning the Holy Spirit's nudging you about something he has for you in this season. One last kind of summary verse that lands the plane here of Judea and Samaria. Verse 25, Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem. Remember they took that offering because of the famine last week. They returned when they completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. And that's where the scene is going to kind of curtain closes on act two of the story of the church. And then in August, the curtain will part again and we'll pick up with act three, where the gospel goes to the ends of the earth. I believe that the posture of our heart determines the extent of the nudge. I believe he's still in the business of nudging hearts towards himself. The question is just, are we listening? Let me say that again. I believe God is still in the business of nudging hearts towards himself. The question is, are we listening? Not, is he working in our lives? Are we listening? Trevor shared during the call to worship that our staff was in Guatemala last week. Um, while we were there, we, we got to meet an incredible woman of God. We traveled to a clinic there um, that our partnership with Mana Worldwide um, supplies prenatal vitamins to this incredible clinic. And we met a woman. I have a picture of her. Her name is Anita. Anita has been serving God in this village in the middle of nowhere in Guatemala for 24 years. When she got there, the infant mortality rate was through the roof. It was expected that a baby would not live in childbirth. And she said today, they hardly ever hear of a baby dying in childbirth. Been there for almost a quarter of a century, and God's used her to almost eradicate child deaths in that village and the two villages surrounding. Incredible. She told a story of a few years ago losing her son. Some of you in this room know that life is so hard that sometimes a parent buries a child. It's how hard life is. After she had lost her son, a woman in the village lost her son to suicide. And in that moment, she walked side by side with that other mom through that grief, through that pain, reminding her that God's still up to something and you're not alone. So there can be peace because prayer works even when we don't feel it. As time went on, she said she was at the clinic one day and just sensed a nudge from the Holy Spirit to go check on that single mom. So when she finished her clinic duties for the day, she went to her little home. And that little mama came to the door and saw Anita and just started crying. And Anita said, what's wrong? She said, you don't understand. She said, I fixed myself a meal. I prayed and I told God, if no one comes to see me in the next 60 minutes, I'm going to end my life. The grief is too much. 
she said, I can't believe you're here. And Anita said, I can believe I'm here because I serve a God who nudges. Okay, she didn't say that. I made that part up because it fit with the sermon. And here's the deal. Tomorrow, the Holy Spirit might not nudge you in such a way to save a person's life. That's a pretty dramatic story. It might be much less spectacular than that, but no less glorious. And maybe it's not tomorrow's nudge. Maybe it's a right now nudge. Maybe there's something that God's been working in your heart about for whatever's next for you, and it terrifies you. Maybe your faith feels a lot more like doubt. And I just want you to know that your questions and your fears and your doubts, they're not kryptonite to the power of God. He's got you. He's not offended at your questions. He's not insecure about your doubts. That's why he's at work. He's growing you. And nothing will stop that. 